For the last few weeks in John's Gospel, we've been focusing on Jesus' death. Not only the details of his death, but the crucial importance of it. We've seen that we cannot afford to quickly skip on past Jesus' death, as if it's an ugly blip in an otherwise uplifting story. We cannot skip past the cross because our salvation depends on it. On the cross, Jesus was paying for our sin. He was paying a debt that no one else could pay. By dying as our substitute, he was making it possible for us to be forgiven by God. We cannot underestimate or undervalue the importance of the cross. However, it is equally true that we must not stop with the cross. Once we've considered it and taken in the significance of it, we mustn't put a full stop after it, like it's the end of the story. Because if it was the end of the story, Christianity would be a pretty morbid thing. If the cross was the end of the story, it would be a pretty depressing story. But thank God the cross was not the end, and the tomb was not the end either. On the other side of the cross and the tomb, there is a new reality. Not just a return to the way things were, but a new situation, a new order. We could sum it up like this. Jesus' resurrection defined our own resurrection hope. And his resurrection marked the start of a new relationship between us and God. We find this described for us in John chapter 20. If you haven't turned there yet, it's on page 1089 or in the larger print Bibles 1685. John chapter 19 described the death and burial of Jesus. At the end of chapter 19, we heard about Jesus' burial in a garden tomb. That was on Friday afternoon. Chapter 20 picks up the story on Sunday morning. Sunday is the first day of the week. We're going to read from verse 1 down to verse 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, 
Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. This is God's word. The passage divides into two clear sections. And the first section in verses 1 to 10 shows us how Jesus' resurrection defined our own resurrection hope. But this passage opens with no hope at all. That's clear in the first couple of verses. Mary is not expecting a resurrected Savior. She's expecting to pay her respects to a dead Savior. As we said, the first day of the week is Sunday. The Jewish Sabbath is from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. So Mary has observed the Sabbath, and now she comes back to the tomb early on Sunday morning, while it's still dark. As we've read through John's gospel, we've noticed that John is very selective in what he puts in and what he leaves out of his gospel. There are few, if any, throwaway details. And here, of course, it is still dark because it's the very early hours of the morning. But I suspect John is showing us Mary herself is still in the dark about what's going to come next. And by the way, one thing Mary is not in the dark about is where exactly Jesus was buried. Matthew, Mark, and Luke in their gospel accounts each record the detail that Mary and others followed Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus when they buried Jesus. Mary and the other ladies took very careful note of where the tomb was. Why? Because they intended to come back. Now here John doesn't mention the other ladies directly, but he assumes we know about them from the other Gospels, because he records Mary's words to Peter and John in verse 2. She says, they have taken the Lord, and we don't know where they have laid him. That's a reference to the other ladies who came with Mary. But John focuses just on Mary here. And if we ask why he does that, the answer comes, I think, in the second part of this passage. So we'll come back to the question then. But for now, the point to see is that Mary is expecting to find a dead body. She's looking for a dead Lord, not a living one. And as we've noticed, she knows exactly where to find her dead Lord. She has watched carefully as he was buried. Just another by the way on this, if by some chance... Mary had gone to the wrong tomb, 
and Jesus' body was still lying in some other tomb, if that had happened, there is no doubt the Jewish leaders would swiftly have produced Jesus' body from that other tomb. They would have loved the chance to squash the idea that Jesus had risen. But they couldn't. They did not produce Jesus' dead body because there was no dead body to produce. In any case, Mary has come to the right tomb, as we said, expecting to find a dead body. On Friday, she had watched Jesus being buried here. She'd watched the heavy stone disc being rolled across the entrance to the tomb. This tomb is a cave cut into the rock, and the entrance was sealed by rolling a stone disc down a sloping groove across the front of the door. What that meant was it was fairly easy to roll the stone into place. Gravity helped it settle down the slope into the groove. But gravity also made it very hard to push the stone up out of the groove and away from the entrance. But Mary quickly realizes that is exactly what's happened. However, as Mary realizes that, you'll notice she does not start dancing and singing Jesus is alive. She runs to tell Simon, Peter, and John he is the disciple Jesus loved. And she runs to tell them in verse 2, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. They have taken him, Mary says, and they have put him somewhere. Mary still assumes her Lord is dead. She assumes not that he has risen, but that his corpse has been moved. And we don't know who Mary has in mind when she says they have taken him. Grave robbery was certainly a thing at this time, and maybe that's what Mary is thinking of. But what is clear is that she is not thinking about resurrection. Maybe she should have been. Jesus had spoken about it often enough in the past, but she isn't thinking about resurrection because she knows people don't rise from the dead. Sometimes people talk about the early Christians as if they were gullible dopes who would believe anything. And so, of course, when Jesus died, they were just itching for any excuse to believe that he rose again. Sometimes people say that, but there is no hint of that in the New Testament. In one sense, we might expect Jesus' followers to be primed for a resurrection. As we said a moment ago, he had spoken about it often. But obviously, even though Jesus had spoken about it, the idea seemed too far-fetched for his followers. Because they were people just like you and me. They were not gullible dopes, just waiting for any excuse to believe. Their experience taught them, dead people do not rise from the dead. And in fact, they were so sure of that, that even seeing Jesus raise Lazarus sometime before this, even that incredible miracle had not been enough to dislodge their common sense understanding that dead people don't rise again. Even seeing Lazarus raised did not overcome what Jesus' followers knew to be true. Dead people don't rise. 
Yeah, there was that thing with Lazarus, but yes, we saw uh, him raised, but we saw Jesus die. We saw the Roman soldiers make absolutely certain he was dead. And so the disciples think this empty tomb must mean someone has taken his body and put it somewhere else. And I emphasize all of that just to point out, as Christians, our confidence does not rest on the fact that Jesus' followers find an empty tomb. It rests on the fact that they find an empty tomb and then they met the risen Lord himself. Only a meeting with the risen Lord could have convinced these people he had risen. By itself, the empty tomb was not enough. We see the same thing here with Simon, Peter, and John. When Mary tells them, they race to the tomb, and they go further than Mary. They actually go in and make absolutely sure she didn't make a mistake. They confirm the tomb is empty. But they don't start dancing and singing about resurrection either. Yes, verse 8 says John believed, but verse 9 immediately says Peter and John still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So whatever it was John believed in verse 8, it seems his belief stopped short at this point of a resurrection. Probably he now believes for himself what Mary told him, that the tomb is empty. And in addition to that, John may also believe that there's something more to this, that God's hand is involved somehow. But verse 10 seems to confirm Peter and John are more puzzled here than they are joyful and triumphant. Because instead of racing off to tell the other disciples, they go back to where they're staying. But before we leave the empty tomb to see what happened next, it's worth asking what the empty tomb teaches us about resurrection. If we look at the empty tomb knowing what happened next, knowing that Jesus has in fact risen at this point, what can we learn about his resurrection from the empty tomb? Well, we learn that his resurrection was a physical resurrection. It was his physical body that was raised. It's important to notice that because sometimes, in an effort to make Christianity more acceptable to skeptical people, sometimes well-meaning Christians say Jesus rose in the hearts of his disciples. Or they say that he rose spiritually. So his appearances to his disciples were a kind of visionary experience for them. But the New Testament does not allow us to come to that conclusion. It insists the tomb was empty. Jesus did not appear spiritually to his disciples while his body was still lying in the tomb. It was Jesus' physical body that rose. He appeared to his disciples in his physical body. They could touch him. They could grab hold of him, as we'll see with Mary a bit later. The risen Jesus was solid flesh and bone. He was not a spirit. He was not a ghost. And what we need to see is that defines our own hope for our own resurrection. 
Now, according to the New Testament, there is a sense in which we have already been resurrected. If we have put our trust in Jesus, the New Testament tells us we have been raised to life. We've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness and death to the kingdom of light and life. That is a wonderful truth. You can read about that in Ephesians chapter 2. But the New Testament also promises us a future resurrection. And that future hope is defined by Jesus' own resurrection. We saw last week, Jesus is our forerunner in going into death. He went all the way into that dark valley so that you and I need not fear it when we face it ourselves. And here is the complement to that truth. Here is its companion truth. Jesus is our forerunner in resurrection as well. He is the pioneer in emerging on the other side of death, rising from the grave. His resurrection is the reason we are sure of our own resurrection. And because his resurrection was physical, we know that ours will be too. Our future is not a disembodied one. Our hope for the future is not just spiritual. It is physical also. These bodies will serve us again on the other side of death. When Christ returns, we shall be like him. Like him in his holiness, yes, and like him in his physicality, too. But that's not all the empty tomb teaches us about resurrection. Yes, it teaches us Jesus was raised physically. There was continuity between his pre-death body and his resurrection body. But there was also difference. When we read this passage, and we read it earlier, you may have noticed the amount of detail John gave about the grave clothes. Look at that again in verse 5. Speaking about himself as the other disciple, John says he got to the tomb before Peter, then he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. So inside the tomb, we're to think of a stone bench. That's where the dead body had been laid by Joseph and Nicodemus on Friday, wrapped in strips of linen. And now apparently what John and Peter see is those same grave clothes lying as they were arranged on Friday. They are all in their place on the bench. Except now there's no body inside them. In other words, this is not a repeat of what happened to Lazarus. Chapter 11 described how Jesus raised Lazarus after he'd been in the tomb for four days. When Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb, Lazarus did not run out. He didn't even walk out. He either hopped out or he shuffled out. Why? 
because he was still wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Lazarus had to have his grave clothes unwrapped by others. They had to be taken off because he was bound tightly in them from head to foot. That is not what happened to Jesus. The scene here at his, his tomb is that everything is lying neatly as it was. Jesus has not had his grave clothes taken off. They haven't been unwound from his body like they were for Lazarus. Jesus' resurrection body has passed through his grave clothes. And in the passage we'll look at next week, John will describe how on two separate occasions, Jesus' resurrection body passed through a locked door. What does all this tell us? It tells us while there was continuity between Jesus' pre-death body and his resurrection body, there was also difference. His resurrection body had greater capabilities than his pre-death body. And the New Testament tells us the same will be true of our own resurrection bodies. Earlier we read from 1 Corinthians 15, and there the Apostle Paul says that Christ's resurrection is the first fruits of our own. Our resurrection will follow the same pattern as his. And remember what Paul said about our resurrection bodies. As he speaks of them like seeds planted in the ground, he says, the body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When Paul speaks there about a spiritual body, the context shows us He's not denying that it is a physical body he's talking about. He's speaking about a physical body plus. You can see that in these verses. The contrast is not between physical and spiritual. It's between natural and spiritual. Our resurrection bodies will be physical bodies animated by the Spirit of God. They will be physical bodies that are empowered in every way they need to be for God's new creation, His new heaven and earth. And we don't know all the details of what it means, what it will look like for this natural body to be clothed and made imperishable and immortal. We don't know all the details of what that will be like exactly. But Jesus' resurrection helps us see how it will be similar yet greater to these bodies we have now today. We will not be raised like Lazarus was raised. Lazarus was restored to a few more years of the life you and I have now. A few more years in the same kind of weak, perishable body you and I have now. Jesus' resurrection was different. His resurrection body was enhanced. 
And his resurrection body is the first fruits of our own. So as you look at the empty tomb and the empty grave clothes, don't just think of them as evidence for Jesus' resurrection. They are that, of course, but they are more. They help us to see how Jesus' resurrection defined our own resurrection hope. Our resurrection will follow the pattern of his. But that's not all there is to the new reality brought about by Jesus' resurrection. Verses 11 to 18 tell us, Jesus' resurrection marked the start of a new relationship between us and God. Back in verse 1, Mary Magdalene was first to the tomb. It seems that when she went to get Peter and John, she followed them back to the tomb. And this time, when Peter and John leave, Mary stays weeping. And she is blessed with an incredible experience. But again, she's not expecting anything incredible. She's not hoping for anything more than a chance to retrieve Jesus' body from wherever it's been put and place it back in the tomb. And Mary's tears here are perfectly understandable. But maybe there's a particular depth to Mary's grief because of her particular life experience. This is not Jesus' mother Mary. This is literally Mary of Magdala. That's where she comes from. And Luke's gospel tells us Jesus in the past had cast seven demons out of this lady. Jesus had cured this lady from unimaginable distress. So her grief here at Jesus' tomb is perfectly understandable. And yet, from the perspective of heaven, her grief is out of place here at the empty tomb of Jesus. At this point, it's a little bit later in the day. It is no longer dark. And so have a look at verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. If Mary had known who was in the garden with her, she wouldn't have been weeping. Maybe it was her tears that initially stopped her from recognizing Jesus. Maybe she simply didn't believe what her eyes were trying to tell her. Maybe there was something subtly different about his resurrected body that caused her to be not quite sure at first. But when Mary hears Jesus' voice saying her name, then there's no doubt anymore. Mary is one of the good shepherd's sheep. 
And as Jesus said, his sheep know his voice. We've seen so often in John's gospel, Jesus is a personal Savior and Lord. He knows and he loves and he saves specific people. Not just a mass of people that he takes no real interest in. In the past, Jesus came to Mary in the horrors of her demonic possession and he set her free. And here, on the other side of the cross and the grave, he calls her by name. She is personally known and loved by Jesus. And as we've also stressed again and again throughout this gospel, so are you. If you belong to Jesus, you're not just one of many to him. You're not just a nameless part of his church. He knows you as you are. And all of your worries and your burdens, your failures, and all of your joys as well. Yes, the risen Jesus has now returned to heaven, but he returned to heaven as the one who knows his people personally. Just as much as he did when he walked among us here on earth. The risen Jesus loves you and me just as specifically and just as individually as he loved Mary. And each of the others we've met in John's gospel. But his resurrection marked the start of something even richer and even deeper. A new fuller relationship between us and God. Remember on the cross, Jesus paid for our sin. And in paying for our sin, he removed the barrier between us and God. He opened up the way to fellowship with God. And here, the risen Jesus shows the result of that. It seems that when she recognizes Jesus, Mary is so overcome with emotion that she grabs hold of him. And if we take into consideration the culture of this time, it's likely Mary has actually dropped to, her, to the ground with her face to the ground. She's taken hold of Jesus' feet. It seems to be a combination of, I worship you and I'm never, ever going to let you out of my sight again. But look how Jesus responds to her in verse 17. Do not hold on to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. What is Jesus saying? Well, do not hold on to me has the sense of don't cling to me. You don't need to clutch at me like you don't dare let me out of your sight, Mary. Because things are not going to be like they were before. They're going to be better. Now, at first, that seems hard to believe because Jesus talks about ascending to his Father. Going back to the glory he had before he came to earth to die. Jesus is going to leave. So how on earth could that be better for Mary and the rest of Jesus' followers? 
it will be better because although for a time they won't see Jesus in person until resurrection day when he comes again to be with us in person forever, although for a time he won't be here physically, in the meantime Jesus' followers will enjoy a new privilege. They, us, sinful human beings, will enjoy a new relationship with God. Jesus shows the nature of that relationship when he says to Mary in verse 17, go to my brothers. Now he is not talking about his physical brothers. At this point, his physical brothers haven't yet come to believe in him. Jesus is referring to his disciples. Previously, before his death, he had called them friends. Now, on the other side of his death, they are his brothers. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross has removed the barrier. Sinful men and women can have their sin washed away. We can be purified by Christ's blood. We can be welcomed into God's family as brothers and sisters of the risen Jesus. The book of Hebrews says, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Shortly after this, after Jesus' resurrection, his physical presence on earth ended temporarily. He ascended to his Father. But a new fellowship began between God and his people. In verse 17, Jesus describes it. I am ascending to my Father and your Father. To my God and your God. One day Jesus will return and we will enjoy his physical presence forever. But in the meantime, we have more today than his disciples had before the cross. We have the ability to approach the Holy Eternal One as our God and as our Father. And by our Father's side sits Jesus, our brother. In heaven we are known by name and we are welcomed as members of the family. Thank God for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And thank God for the new reality his resurrection brought about for us. Jesus' resurrection defined our own resurrection hope. We will be raised as he was raised. And his resurrection marked the start of a new relationship between us and God. We relate to him as dearly loved children. Welcomed beside Jesus, our brother. These are truths to build our lives on. They're truths to take our stand on. 
And we're going to do that as we join together in affirming these truths in the words of the Apostles' Creed. It's a summary of the gospel truths that the church has used since its very early days. We'll say the Apostles' Creed together, and then we'll join in singing, See What a Morning. So if you'll stand with me, please. We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from where He shall come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy worldwide church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.
Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Amen.